to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. If you're using a church Bible, uh, you'll find the passage on page 1,186. Last uh, Lord's Day evening, we were looking at uh, verse 1, and I said then that I had no assurance this would be a series. We're going to look at verses 1 to 10 this evening, still with no assurance that this will be a series unless you count two messages on the same chapter as a series. And by uh, way of preface, um, let me say there is always a background to every New Testament letter, but there's also a background to all the New Testament letters, and that background is found in Matthew chapter 16 in the confession that Peter makes that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus responds to that, uh, and His response is that He's going to build His church, but that the gates of Hades will seek to withstand that church building, but they will not be able to overthrow it. And every single passage in the New Testament beyond that has those words as its context. And you need to, as it were, have those words in the, in, crafted into the spectacle lenses through which you see everything that's happening everything that happens from this point on is Jesus building His church, and the efforts of the, the, the powers of darkness to withstand that. Um, and it appears, all the way through the Acts of the Apostles, it appears as the background, it's the, it's the elevator music, as it were, to every New Testament letter and then it appears like a, like a technicolor drama in the book of Revelation. And you can see an outcrop of that in the way in which Paul describes what happened when he went uh, to this Macedonian city of Thessalonica and preached the gospel. So, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. 
for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Some evening, or perhaps some Saturday, perhaps in this room, or in one of the rooms behind us, or upstairs, there will take place a gathering of a select number of members of this congregation with an as yet unknown individual. Both parties, I assume, will be just a little nervous. This will be the group in our congregation who will recommend to us a new minister, and potentially the stranger in the room will be that new minister. And the people who will do that interview are, of course, too wise to ask the question such committees and groups of people often ask candidates, which is this question, what is your vision for our church? To which the shrewd candidate responds, I think really the first question is, what is your vision for your church? Because if he's shrewd, what he understands is, I need to know what the first principles are in this church's mind that drive the way it views itself, views its calling, views the world, and will view my ministry. And sometimes people in that situation, and there are not a few men in the church this evening who have been precisely in that situation, what sometimes uh, the question, what is your vision for your church, reveals is that the first principles some people have is, what I would like the church to be is as follows. And if you fit into that, then you're my man. And I say people who represent this congregation will be too wise to ask that question in the first place, because that really isn't the issue, is it? The, the real issue is not how I would like the church to be. The real issue is what? The real issue is how God would like the church to be. And Paul's experience when he visited Thessalonica and preached the gospel there just for a very few weeks before he was thrown out of town, Paul's experience as he looked back on that ministry there, gave him a tremendous sense that God had done something very decisive among the Thessalonians. Indeed, he talks about this congregation as, as his glory. That is to say, he, he felt that, that what God had done here was to create a real church 
that really understood what it meant to be a church. And actually, in the first two chapters in Thessalonians, before he goes on to give them instruction and exhortation, he actually spends all of the time rehearsing what God did there. And it's a, it's a very striking way to hold up to the Thessalonians, this is what God did among you. These are the first principles God used. So, so make sure you align your vision of what you're to be in the future with what God has done for you, with, with God's first principles. That's why, as we noted last week, uh, he speaks about the Thessalonians as a model church, a model church, not a perfect church, but a model church. And we noted that he uses this Greek word, tupos, uh, from which we get the words type and typewriter, uh, the way in which, the, in which the, the keys of the typewriter through, remember those old ribbons, black, was it black on the top and red on the bottom? Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. And, the, and, the, and the, the metal would crash through the ribbon and leave this black indentation on the page in its own image. And this is how Paul sees the Thessalonian church. It, it, it is a church in which God has left, as it were, the template of what it means to be a church. And there are some very marvelous things about it. One of the things that's so impressive about it is that it's God who created it. And you get this sense in the way in which Paul describes his visit here in these first two chapters, that although he gave himself to the Thessalonians, some ways he felt he was just a spectator, watching what God was doing through his ministry. He spoke the words, but the words came with power that were not Paul's powers, and with conviction that were not just simply Paul's personal conviction. And they responded to that. And the result was, as you'll notice if you read through Thessalonians really quickly, that they became a profoundly God-centered church. Indeed, in these five relatively short chapters, the Apostle Paul refers to God, I think, almost three dozen times. This was a church that was centered on God. It was God's church. God had designed it. God had created it. And God had centered it upon Himself and His own glory. You know, from that point of view, we, we might include question 1A in our shorter catechism. What is the chief end of the church? The chief end of the church is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And in this first chapter, he's bringing out some of these principles. Uh, and he brings it out to, to a group of people who have had, a, had an amazing effect because of what God did among them. Uh, you notice, did you, in the reading how Paul says, actually, I, I don't need to tell anybody about what God did among you. I, if I say, you know, I, 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 was, I was in Thessalonica just six months ago, 
He says, wherever they go, wherever I go. People say, we know, we heard. And to try and, get, to try and catch a sense of what it meant for a church to be created by God and to be a, a model of what God wanted to do, uh, he says, wherever I go in Macedonia and Achaia, I mean, think about it this way. Think about some uh, Christian going anywhere in Scotland, and this is an area larger than Scotland, going anywhere in Scotland, and everywhere he goes, people have heard about what God has done, for example, in Dundee, in St. Peter's. And many of us know the history of this church. We know that actually happened. That in, in, the 19, in the 1830s, in the early 1840s, you could have gone anywhere in Scotland and said St. Peter's, and people would have heard what God had done. And this is why Paul is, is, so, is so encouraged by this church, because what happened here was clearly not because of his personality not even because of his gifts, but because God came to Thessalonica and God built a church in Thessalonica. And in these verses, he, he kind of, well, what I want to draw out from them, whether this is a series or not a series on the first chapter, I want to draw out from them is four of the marks of a church that is created by God and devoted to God, and becomes really useful to God. Because in a sense, ultimately, this, this should be our vision for the church. This should be, this would, should be what, what we want to fit into. Isn't, isn't that the case? We want to fit into what God wants to do. And, and here are four of them. As often, they're just almost like loose threads on which I want to pull, and I'm going to try and pull on them not too long. The first is this. It's the impact of the Word of God. And for Paul, this is the absolutely fundamental thing, the power of the Word of God. He, he uses language like this, that the, that the Word of God is at work among them. The Word of God is at work among them. And we see this here because he comments on its impact. He says, the, the, because our gospel came to you, this is verse 5, not only in word or in words. Of course, it did come in words, but it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I think most of us have some glimpse of what he's talking about, because we've, we've heard sermons that are full of words, but that's all they've been full of. But then there is a preaching of the Word that it feels as though God Himself is doing it, as though God is engaging with your soul, and, and you find yourself as it were, becoming less and less conscious of the bodies around you and more and more conscious of His presence. 
And Paul is saying that's what happens when the words that are preached are accompanied with the power of the Holy Spirit to take those words, as it were, out of the preacher's mouth and plant them into your soul so that as the ministers, preachers in this congregation have all experienced, if you shake hands at the door, someone may say to you, who has been talking to you about me? And the answer is, nobody's been talking to me about you. But God has been speaking to you through His Word. And later on in chapter 2, he says this interesting thing. He says, you received it not just as the words of men, but as the Word of God. That, friends, is the difference between thinking it was a good sermon, a bad sermon, a short sermon, a long sermon an eloquent sermon or a stammering sermon. That is recognizing that God has spoken to us. And uh, that was what happened there. You received the Word of God, he says in chapter 2, not as the words of men, verse 13, but as it really is, the Word of of God. It becomes as clear to you as night and day, as black and white, as red and green, as French and English, that this is not the words of men, uh, no matter which man it is, but this is nothing less than the Word of God addressing you. And that's what always creates a church. Um, and nothing else can create a church. And the result was they received the Word of God with joy, although it cost them. And that's an interesting combination, isn't it? He says in verse 6, you received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Now, those two things do not go together in normal human experience. Um, they were they were, watching, they were watching Paul being demeaned. They, they, were, they were seeing their own people being oppressed. So there was much affliction, but at the same time there was great joy. And I think that was one of the reasons Paul knew this was the real deal. Remember how Jesus says in the parable of the sores that there are people who hear the Word of God and they receive it with tremendous joy. And uh, you, maybe you've seen this kind of thing, and if you've lived the Christian life long enough, you've seen people respond to the Word of God with extraordinary enthusiasm and joy. And you eventually are, and you need to watch that, because joy on its own is not an adequate response to the gospel. And Jesus says sometimes if there is if there's only joy, then uh, indeed, if there is only joy, then things will fade away because life is not always joyful. But where the Word of God is received with joy in the midst of affliction, there you've got the real thing. And, you know, at the end of the day, isn't it interesting that one of the things you discover in, in the story of the Christian church is that where we fail to 
associate ourselves with God's methods, we end up using methods that can never build the church because they're not the methods the Holy Spirit uses. I'll give you an example which has got nothing to do with our band. I remember years and years ago, more than 40 years ago, at the immense privilege of speaking at a conference with the other speaker was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I didn't know that when I said I would go to the conference, or might have thought twice about it. He told this very interesting story in the middle of one of his addresses about a, a very well-known Welsh evangelist who was a sensation, I think, in the 1950s because he played a guitar. And that was a great novelty in the 1950s. His father had also been a famous evangelist. They both had the same name. And his father said to him at one point, Davy, Davy, will you not get rid of that guitar? Because he felt it was a gimmick. We didn't need a guitar. Do you know what the son said to him? No, Dad. But you had the Holy Spirit. You had the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you are giving me quizzical looks. This is, this is not attacking guitars. But remember when the Spirit of God came here, you've read about it. They didn't need anything. They didn't need anything but the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And whenever we drift from that, then we begin to create a church and a fellowship that becomes like every other institution that some of us remember from the 1950s with full buildings, much activity, and no sense of the presence and the power of God. Because the presence and the power of God are mediated to us through the Word of God. And so, Paul rejoices in this, the impact of the Word of God. Then he rejoices in a second thing, and that is the way the Word of God created in Thessalonica the family of God. Now, in emphasizing the importance of what happened through the preaching of the Word of God, the Apostle Paul is not saying that what you need in a church for a church to be an effective church, what you need is a good preacher. That's a good thing to have. A bad preacher would not be such a good thing to have. But having good preaching and good teaching is not how the New Testament thinks about a church. Good preaching would make for a good lectern what makes for a church is what happens when the Word of God does its work among us as the people of God. And when it does its work among us as the people of God, according to the New Testament, what invariably happens is that this community of diverse people become the family of God. I think I may have said before how important I think it is that we understand that is the number one picture in the New Testament of what a church is. I know through the centuries the answer to the question, what is the church, has been the body of Christ. 
Why can that not be the number one New Testament picture of what the church is? Because there's only one person in the New Testament ever uses that picture. Paul doesn't use it. Peter doesn't use it. The Apostle John doesn't use it. The author of Hebrews doesn't use it. Luke doesn't use it. Matthew doesn't use it. Mark doesn't use it. Only Paul uses it. And if only one apostle uses it, you could never say that's the big picture. Moreover, the apostle who uses that picture has a more important picture, and that is that church is family. Church is, church is the community where what Satan destroyed in the Garden of Eden begins to be restored, not by biological connection but by the impact of the Word and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And this is the reason why you notice right at the beginning, Paul speaks about the Thessalonians being in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where they belong. They belong in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He has become their father. He has become their elder brother. They have become family to one another. And you notice he appeals to them in these very terms, for we know, brothers, loved by God. The ESV that I use always has this little footnote, brothers means brothers and sisters. If you want to say, brothers and sisters, we are loved by God. But they weren't brothers and sisters, biologically, any more than most of us in the room are brothers and sisters, biologically. They were brothers and sisters by a deeper alchemy than biology because they were all indwelt by the spirit of adoption. And in fact, if you read through First Thessalonians, you notice that over and over and over again, he appeals to them in these terms, I think a dozen times beyond verse 4. We're family here, we're family here, we're family here. And there are little, in, there are little indications of that. Um, I said something to, to one of the children this morning, and uh, I, the child mimicked what I said. Children love to do that, don't they? And actually, when we grow up, that, basically that's how we learn a lot. We learn a lot by watching and then mimicking. Um, and that's exactly the language that's used here. He says to them, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, verse 6. It's, it's as though he's saying you were brought into a family where you had, you had me as your, as your older brother and you had the Lord Jesus as my older brother. And just as I've sought to imitate Him, to mimic Him, to follow Him, to show Him, then you've picked that up from us. It's really interesting, isn't it, that obviously He'd spent time teaching them, but the teaching was not simply verbal communication. It was, it was what He was what he was in relationship to Christ, what he was in relationship to Sylvanus and Timothy, 
and what he was in relationship to them. And they, they caught on to that, that, that these three men who had come to them, they were an older brother, a, a, a slightly less old brother, and a, and a younger brother. And they saw that, that what God does through His Word by His Spirit is that He adopts us into His family. He makes us His children. This is the place where we belong. This is the place where we're at home. This is the place where we, we don't need ultimately to pretend to one another because we know that, that what we are, we're all sinners who have, who have been forgiven. And the family characteristics begin to emerge. You'll notice that towards the end of the chapter when he speaks about the way in which faith and hope and love have characterized them. And he tells them that uh, everyone knows about the fact that they have faith in God, that they have this uh, work, labor of love, verse 3, this steadfastness of hope. These are the family characteristics. And he says, the reason I know God has chosen you, that your conversion was genuine, is because I can see the family likeness in you. And then there's a third mark of this church. There's the the power of the Word of God among them. There's the existence of the family of God to which they belong. And thirdly, there's their commitment to the service of God. Now, that's implicit in verse 3. We remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Your faith makes you, makes you work out what it means to belong to Christ. Your love makes you be willing to do that to the point of exhaustion. He uses a stronger word. And your hope means that you persevere in doing that in the face of opposition. And, and this is all a characteristic of their Christian service because they became imitators of the Apostle Paul. Now, what did that mean? Well, he goes on to explain to them in, in the second chapter in a, in a very interesting phrase. He says, when we came, uh, we gave you two things. We gave you the gospel, and we gave you ourselves. We gave you the gospel, and we also gave you ourselves. Chapter 2 and verse 8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. You know, sometimes I've heard people say this about uh, preachers, he really gave them the gospel. Um, and there's always a little question in my mind when I hear that, and it's this. Don't mistake that for being apostolic. Being apostolic, being the real deal, means you also give yourself. And I kind of suspect I've actually heard people give the gospel, but not give themselves. But you see, this was a great key to Paul's ministry. 
Remember how he puts it in Second Corinthians 4, I think it's verse 5. He says, uh, we didn't preach ourselves good. We preached Jesus Christ as Lord, really good. And, now, when you say Jesus Christ and, your instinct is to say, this is going to be really bad. There is no and on top of Jesus Christ. But what Paul says is, we didn't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves, your bond slaves for Jesus' sake. What was he saying? He was saying, the way in which we authenticated the gospel in our lives is by the way in which we did what Jesus Christ did, washing the disciples' feet, dying on the cross, becoming a bond slave of others, giving ourselves to others. And Paul realized, because he, 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 talks, about the, he talks about the danger of, of living for self, Paul realized that if we, if we don't do that in our service, it's uh, really because we are protecting ourselves from the gospel, because this is what the gospel creates in us. So, yes, there's the Word of God, there's the family of God, there's the service of God, and that leads inevitably, as we rush on, to the church's place in the mission of God. And this, again, is, is so interesting to me. It's, it's, really, it's really very interesting to me how little, how little Paul has to say about how you do evangelism. I've always been fascinated by this since as a teenager I got my first evangelism manual that told me how to evangelize a man I saw walking down the street with his dog. And have I told you this before? You go up to him and you say, sir, did you know that dog is God spelt backwards? And I couldn't help feeling, I think there's something slightly artificial about that. I, can't, I cannot imagine the Apostle Paul walking down the streets and doing that. So, there are, there are no little, you know, there are no little secrets that the Apostle Paul gives. Uh, what the Apostle Paul understands happens in this case is that what God does in making this church what this church became made this community so dramatically different from every other community in Thessalonica and indeed in the whole of what we call Greece and indeed in the whole of the Roman Empire that uh, the gospel just, it just went. It, it went by word of mouth, by by the impact of, of these people's transformed lives and their transformed community, making people talk, and then making people interested. And that's actually our problem, isn't it, today? That our churches are not so dramatically different from the world that anyone would actually comment on them, um, that anyone would be intrigued by them. Thankfully, people are intrigued here. Constantly people, 
people sometimes never, never darken the door of a church and their lives find themselves here by some means or another. And uh, you see how Paul puts it here in, in verses 8 and 9. Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. He doesn't mean that they were sending evangelists everywhere. He, he means people were hearing what God had done there. And it was in this way by the creation of this kind of church, this transformed community, that it seemed to, it seemed to echo out like these great sea creatures that can hear each other across apparently endless miles underwater. How can that happen when you can't hear anybody half a mile away? Ah, because there is a divine alchemy in the way He's created them. And there's a divine alchemy in what God does when He creates this kind of church that is centered on Himself. I remember those words that uh, are in Westminster Abbey about Sir Christopher Wren. It's not Westminster Abbey, is it? It's St. Paul's. If you're looking for his monument, just look around. You see this, and you think of what genius created this. And uh, it's the same here. When God builds a living church in enemy-occupied territory, the gates of Hades will seek to destroy it. And they had their problems. And if this is a series, we'll come to the problems. But the great thing was, it was so evident that God had done this and that they were so God-centered. And the, the, the challenge in this for us is to get on board with what Christ wants to do. It is as simple as that. How I like to do church needs to become subservient to what God wants to do in building a church. And you see, what God wants to do in, in building a church is you, you can't create that by human means or by human gifts. The really irritating thing about God is He wants to do it Himself so that He will have all the glory, so that I don't get puffed up, but all of us are bowed down underneath the weight of His Word. Lots of other things, lots of other religious things, lots of other evangelical things uh, can create efficiency, personal efficiency, ecclesiastical efficiency, but they can't create family. They can't create this reverberating impact of the churches that God Himself builds. And so, there's a great challenge for us here in this letter to these very, very young Christians. They, 
they, they, they didn't know very much about how to do church, but they had experienced God doing church. And wasn't Dr. Lloyd-John's story maybe absolutely on the spot? Are there so many things we want to do in church? But when you think about it, one of the reasons we want to do it is because the Word is not making its impress upon our souls and characters that we are different, and we know so little of the power of the Holy Spirit. And you see, the problem with being a one-eyed person in a world of one-eyed people is that you assume you're seeing clearly until on your little island a man with two eyes appears. And these two eyes are the Word of God and the Spirit of God. These are the instruments Christ uses to build His church. And they're actually our greatest need. Our greatest need is to be as our forefathers were in this building, by the Word of God, exposed in our weakness, fragility, our sinfulness, our desperate spiritual condition, and to find joy in that, because we know this is not psychological maneuvering. This is the work of the blessed Word of God and Spirit of God on our souls, deconstructing us, exposing us, cleansing us, in order to remake us, that brings us to the point at which I think we should always be able to come at the end of a communion service especially, which helps me to finish this sermon, to think that if Christ has been among us with His Word, with His gifts, with His Spirit like this, then I want to be reconciled to everyone in the room. I want to look them in the eyes and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. And there's nowhere else in the world that will happen except in the church that God Himself builds. So as we are in what is an important season in our lives as a church, uh, may we more and more follow through what these years of David's ministry have sought to embed in us, our need for the Word of God, to become the family of God, to be empowered by the Spirit of God, to engage in the service of God, and to be part of the mission of God to the world around us, and indeed to the ends of the earth. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the gift of Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the way in which You come to us through it in a way that not even our nearest and dearest sitting beside us has, has much idea of what may be going on in our souls. You are the great therapist, and in such times You open up the secrets of our hearts, not because a speaker knows them, but because Your Word 
exposes them. We learn things about ourselves that we didn't know existed or thought we had overcome or didn't want to know. You have this way of finding us. You are the one who knows our hearts. Your surgeon's scalpel is clean and sharp. We thank You that our surgeon is the Holy Spirit, and we pray as we, as we also reflect on our own church, as we thank You for what You did in Thessalonica. We pray for our own church here that You would also build manifestly a family here, and that there might be reverberations from this, this very location again as in the past that will give testimony to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, hear us, we pray, and as we, as we come to the table, we also pray that You would show us the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we may feed on Him and drink that grace, and having fed and drunk, that, that, we, may, that we may also rejoice in being able to sit at table with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Hear us, we pray, for His sake. Amen. And just before Will comes to dispense uh, communion to us, uh, we're going to sing a uh, song, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And the words should appear. Vast.